Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Lowe Blassingame, and I am your host. Today, we have Steve Grant. On a December day in 2010, Steve Grant lost his 24-year-old son, Kelly, to an overdose. Five years earlier, he lost his 21-year-old son, Christopher, in the same way. His only two boys, gone. After a downward spiral of losing his marriage, his only two children, and dealing with the repercussions of such, Steve decided to take matters into his own hands and establish the Chris and Kelly Hope Foundation to fight back. The foundation's mission is to provide financial support to programs that treat teens and young adults who struggle with substance abuse and addiction. The Chris and Kelly's Hope Foundation operates under the auspices of the Community Foundation of Greenville, but is committed to assisting worthwhile organizations nationwide. Steve's story has been featured in the Wall Street Journal and Clemson University's TigerIllustrated.com, Letters from Dabo, Section Part 10. In addition to being the managing director of Mass Mutual in South Carolina, he is also a recent author with his book, Don't Forget Me, A Lifeline of Hope for Those Touched by Substance Abuse and Addiction. Whew. This, uh, this episode was heavy. And um, it'll be heavy for you too. But Steve's willingness to find some sort of hope and some sort of courage to pull the courage out of this situation and create Chris and Kelly's Hope Foundation, help other families and to heal, um, absolutely remarkable. As the mother of two boys, this was really, really hard for me to hear. Um, But... It was not a story of, um, you know, utter defeat, utter failure, complete misery, desecration. It was a story of rising truly from the ashes of a situation that most of us cannot imagine. And um, Steve was able to talk about that. And, you know, just to hear someone have this experience and be willing and able to come through it is beyond, beyond me. I hope I would have, um, I hope I would have the dignity and the, and the poise and the, uh, willingness to do what he has done with his life if I were in the same situation. So really, really, uh, intense and beautiful story. And I hope you enjoy it and get as much out of it as I did. Please enjoy Steve Grant episode 59. All right, guys, let's do this. Steve, I have some notes over here, but uh, I doubt we'll need, I doubt I'll need them. Uh, Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I don't even remember where I came across your story, but I was so, I was telling my husband, I'm not a big crier, but I, I genuinely was so moved and I may cry during this interview. So I apologize in advance for <laughs> but oh, I might, uh, I might too also. So. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I, I, um, I have two little boys and I am a recovering alcoholic and so is my husband. I'm actually a recovering heroin addict and congratulations for recovery. Thank you. Thank you. And, uh, and my father, 
Yeah. And my father found me overdosed on May 17th of 2004. And I got a shot of Narcan that saved my life. And, uh, in 2004. Mm -hmm. Wow. I didn't think Narcan was around. Yeah, the, the the ambulance, the paramedics happened to have it. And this wow. was really before the 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 onslaught yeah. of, you know, of of the epidemics. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it was not quite as common. And um, you know, I one of the things that really terrifies me these days is how common you know how common this is, and how kids who you never would have thought before. You know, it, it used to be a junkie was a, you know, that was a, you had, you, you had to do a lot to get to that point. Yeah, and you, you, you picture this person in an alley and he's destitute, you know, he doesn't know where to turn. And, you know, I'm shocked when I hear that you had Narcan in 2004 and I'm glad, I'm glad you're here and, uh, and recovered. When my first son died in 2005 of a methadone and cocaine overdose in his bedroom, I didn't know anyone who lost a child, and I don't live under a rock. And I didn't—I I didn't know anyone though who, who who's lost a child to a drug overdose. I didn't know anybody growing up who'd had a drug overdose. I've heard about a few lately. I didn't know that's how they did, but that's—but it wasn't common. It wasn't common in 2004. And even when Kelly died in 2010 of a heroin overdose, I—the only one I really knew was his brother. Right. So, but now, now it's, you know, I know someone who died yesterday. Uh, I know someone who died last week. So it's, it's very, it's very common now. And it's, it's unfortunate. I mean, we have to get rid of this critical pandemic, obviously, but one of the casualties of this and there's several, but one of them is that the suicide rate's gone up. The drug, drug overdose is going up. People are becoming uh, relapse, relapsing, uh, you know, because they're they're enclosed and there's nothing else to do. I've yeah. got, you know, they it's about the freshman fifteen. Yeah. I've got I've got the quarantine nineteen. Uh, oh, so, I can't so, even look at this point. Yeah, I mean, I'm just like everything. Every time I'm home, I'm I guess it's in my mouth. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's so true. It's so true. Well, you have a remarkable um, story, as you mentioned. You lost both of your sons to overdoses, and uh, you have dedicated your life to talking about it and and speaking and making making it worth something, which I I absolutely uh, can imagine is the only way to continue on really what can you give us a little bit of background on steve where did you grow up and and what was your upbringing like sure i I was actually born in new york city i have a twin brother and my parents were i think 17 and 18 when my brother and i were born it was the day and time where they said mrs graham we hear two heartbeats this is when she's going into labor so so they had one bedroom prepared and it was for two people they that ended up being, but uh, we lived in New York for a little while. Then we moved to New Jersey. I had another brother, and a younger sister. After that, and you know, as as uh, as I wouldn't say a fairy tale upbringing, but it was uh, we were very middle class. But um, I, I didn't want for anything. And my parents uh, were, were great people. And in Paramus, New Jersey, was a great place to grow up. I had to, I mean, I had to leave it for the last 40 years to really kind of appreciate it. Uh, but it's, it was a good place to grow up. And, you know, I was uh, I was an athlete. I was captain of the baseball team, captain of the basketball team, those kind of things. I went to college on a small baseball scholarship and uh, played college baseball. And, you know, then I've been in the financial services business for the last 40 years and done the same thing. 
Yeah. And uh, so you grew up in, in New Jersey, but you ended up in the South, right? I ended up in South Carolina. So I went, went to school at Furman University, which is a small Southern Baptist school in Greenville, South Carolina. And uh, from there, I stayed. And uh, I went in the insurance business and, and have stayed in it ever since right here. Is that where you met your wife? Met my wife. I met my first wife, the boy's mother, in uh, at Furman. She, okay. was, she was a senior with me, and we got married right after we got out of school. And um, had Christopher. When we moved back to Greenville, Christopher was born in 19, let's see, 84, in May of 84. And Kelly was born in May of 86. Okay. And uh, what was your experience like with drinking drugs, like your exposure? Did you know anyone who was an alcoholic? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. My grandmother was an alcoholic. I mean, I didn't know, but my grandmother was a lovely, lovely lady. I loved her. She'd come to our house when I was growing up and she would stay because she lived in New York and we lived in New Jersey. She would come and stay for two weeks, three weeks in the summertime or other times. And she always had this little glass of beer and she poured it in this little glass all the time. And I didn't know what it was. I mean, I knew it was beer. I didn't know it was bad for you. I didn't drink it myself, of course, uh, but she always had it and it was always there. And my mother used, my mother finally, when I, when I was old enough to know, she said she was always, you know, what faced, Uh, and I didn't seem like like that to me. But then of course, my mother had her, uh, taking my grandmother, my mother had a, had a, um, when you read my book, my mother had a time when I was a freshman in college, when she checked herself into a rehab. Now, my mother rarely ever drank. And it was really, it was, yeah, it was really because my sister died of a car, in a car accident. And my mother started self-medicating with alcohol. And that's, that's, it's really kind of an interesting thing because it's part of my book where I talk about some things that not a lot of people know about. And that, where I checked myself into a rehab for a couple of weeks because I found myself Medicaid self-medicating after my son died, my first son died. Yeah. So it was very similar how the apple doesn't roll far from the tree. Right. But right. with that with said, my mother's brother in Florida, who's still alive, was one of those guys that I don't know how they did it, but some doctor said, if you stop, don't stop drinking, you're going to die. He stopped drinking. And to this day, he still doesn't drink. And that's years ago. Then I had his brother, my mother's other brother, died of alcohol-related death. Mother, grandmother died of cirrhosis of the liver. So there's a lot of alcohol on my side of the family, and there's a lot on my my ex-wife's side of the family. My ex-wife's side of the family is more of a, uh, a social drinker. You know, it's a rite of passage sort of stuff. You know, uh, the cocktail at six kind of crowd. Right. Uh, but it's very consistent. Cocktail. Right, right, right. And, right. and cocktails is probably plural. So. Right, right. And uh, tell me about um, the car accident. Uh, my, my sisters? Yeah. Yeah, it kind of changed my parents' lives. Uh, I was home from school that summer, and uh, she and her boyfriend, had, I, I think they won a contest or something, and they won some money. And they say they're going to drive to the New Jersey shore. We were in northern New Jersey, and they had a two-hour drive to some kind of beach location. Well, they left, and my, and my parents told them not to go, but they did. And I think what happened, he fell asleep. They hit a guardrail, and they both were killed. And the next morning, my mother got a call and said, your sister's been in an accident, and you better get to the hospital two hours away. So I remember driving my parents down there, only to realize that when we got there, she had probably died when we were an hour into the trip. So then I identified my sister, and uh, you know, it, it changed the course of my parents' life, frankly. 
So what's interesting about your comment is that you talk about it with regard to it changing the course of your parents' life. But what about you? Well, you know, the whole process, you know, I'm still, I'm very much still the same person. I always have been. Uh, I'm a giving person. Uh, You know, I do anything for anyone. Uh, And I I always say, listen, don't just, you know, I'm a good guy, but don't mess with my wife and don't mess with my kids. And so that's how I, that's how I approach things. Uh, you know, my kids, uh, when I, when I was taking Christopher to his first rehab, you know, he said, dad, I know what you're like. Don't bother that guy. I got liquor from at 14 years old. He's got, you know, he's been conditioned. He's got a family. I said, okay, I'm not going to bother him, Christopher. I mean, I did eventually, but I didn't that night, certainly. But you know, that's, that's, that's how I am. That's how, that's how I'm wired. So when, after my second son died, I really had no intention of starting something like Chris and Kelly's Hope Foundation. Uh, it wasn't, it was the furthest thing from my mind. So it was Kelly, Christopher dies in five years. I went through a divorce that I didn't want to go through 30 days before Christopher died. So there was a double whammy there for a, mar- a 25 year marriage. And that's another casualty of this issue. And and uh, although I'm remarried, I married a great girl who had never been married, never had kids. So, uh, you know, we don't have any children to worry about. But um, I, some of that I regret. Some of it is, is positive. Uh, she feels like she has two kids, though, if you were to ask her. Mm. Uh, so, so uh, which isn't really fair for her. But I'm not sure where I was going with that. Uh, well, so, so tell me a little bit about, so you, you had two sons and... You talked about the first Christopher's first rehab. Like, what were you had the two kids, and when was the first time you saw any signs of anything? Christopher, oh, I know somebody was talking about the foundation, but we'll come back to that. You know, that's interesting. I was starting to see some things that going on in our house and with his behavior, and I, um, I was reading a book one day downstairs, and it really wasn't bothering me any of these things. You know, I, I grew up, I, you know, yes, my experience, I didn't drink until I was probably a, a late teens, uh, any kind of beer or anything like that. Never smoked marijuana until I got to college and did it infrequently. So it's, I'm not a wallflower, uh, but at the same time, so I know, kind of know, and, you know, you kind of, uh, you hate to say this, but, you know, whenever I talk to someone, I always pause when I say, my son's a normal person. But what is a normal person? Well, he drinks a little bit with his friends. He has a little marijuana here and there. Uh, but, you know, parents, when they ask me, and I had three yesterday, you know, I always say that, you know, you know there's something wrong when your son or daughter's life is being controlled by something other than what it should be controlled by. Uh, and and for Christopher, I was sitting in my den one night, and I was reading, and he came downstairs in his pajamas, good-looking kid, uh, six-foot, beautiful, and he says, um, he says, Dad, I don't want to be a F up. And he said the word, you know, we didn't, cur- we, were, we didn't promote cursing, but that's what he said. And I said, well, why do you say you need to be a, you're an F up, you know? But he couldn't tell me. He couldn't tell me. He just kept saying that. And, it, of course, it bothered me, but he couldn't tell me why. And um, I had started years before I helped start the suicide crisis hotline in Greenville. So and I went through the training to listen to somebody on the phone who's thinking about taking their life. And it was very good training. I don't. I did it one night, stopped because I didn't want to go home and wonder what happened to somebody. But it was very good training to hear someone sometimes who's, who, you know, they're saying something, but you don't understand exactly what they mean by it. So he kind of left that. We kind of left that night like it was, you know. 
And about two weeks later, Christopher comes downstairs, same scenario. I was reading a book. He says, Dad, you're my only friend in this life. And I said, oops, you know, myself, I said, okay, here we go. And I said, Chris, you know, I said, I'm very flattered. And I said, but I, when I was 15 years old, and you know, I wasn't the only freshman on the soccer team. I wasn't the only freshman on the basketball team. I didn't have all these girls calling me up and all these things you can be doing. Uh, and for me to be your best friend, I'm very flattered. But I said that I shouldn't be your best friend. My dad was my my dad's my best friend today, but he was certainly he fell down the rung on that when I was 14 and 15 years old. <laughs> uh, so, so that told me he was crying out for something. So the next day, actually, I called a pediatrician friend of mine, and I knew about a psychiatrist in town who was who was very effective with adolescents. And I said to um, uh, my doctor friend, "Hey, I, I'd like to get Christopher to see Doctor So and So. Something's going on, and I'm not exactly sure what it is." Okay. Now I had found some beer cans underneath some some sofas, uh, a liquor bottle here, one maybe thrown in the backyard, one in the garbage can. You know, I was starting to again, I was starting to see these subtle things going on, and not that they didn't bother me, but they were infrequent. And but I, I by the grace of God, that this this uh, this psychiatrist actually saw me the next day on his lunch. He's very hard to see. And he was very nice. And he came out of the room after talking to my son. And he just said, Steve, I can't tell you a lot because it's between Christopher and I, actually. But I'll just tell you that his life is being controlled by marijuana and alcohol. Yeah. You know, and I went, oh, you know, okay. Okay. So um, that's how it started. And that's how it started. And, and um, you know, five rehabs later, five boarding, uh, boarding school, five different high schools after going to the same one for 10 years and or same school system for 10 years only to get your GED. And, and it was just, it was, every step was just, uh, just difficult, just difficult. What did, when he would go to treatment, (laughs) what would happen after? Like how long was the effect? Did he want to stay sober? What, what was that experience like as a parent? You know, going through it the first time you were, I was a little naive. Um, when I was getting ready to do my rudimentary, intervention with Christopher and choosing the night. And I remember how it happened vividly. You know, Christopher, you're going to a rehab facility in Tennessee for 90 days as soon as they call us. All right. He had got kicked out of his high school that he loved and he was in a public school. And I, I told them one of these days I'm going to come get you. Well, the day came and, and we went and um, Christopher, you know, he, he, he didn't fight me on it. You know, I didn't, you know, I, I had people say, don't stop the car. Don't get out to do anything. Mm-hmm. Run. You know, he respected me. He still, and he was, he was, he was obedient, but he was, his life was being controlled by alcohol and drugs. And he got there and I still had the letters and a lot of the letters are in my book. The first letter was you son of a blah, blah, blah. You've, yeah, sent, yeah. you've sent me here with a bunch of blah, 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 intravenous drug users, rednecks. I don't have the problems these guys have. You know, sometimes I wish I could go back to those guys and say, are you still alive? Because Christopher's not, you know, but he, that's what he said. I mean, but the le- the letters got better. And I always tell people that go to treatment, it's almost like your brain changes. And I, 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 I'm on the board of the Medical University of South Carolina down in Charleston, where it's, and it's the Center for Drug and Alcohol Programs, which is about 15 of them around the country, where these people study the, the brain and say, this is how it changes. And sure enough, these letters were, 
uh, Dad, you know, I'm, 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 I'm you know, I, I know I've got to stop drinking, but, you know, I, I, I really like that marijuana. And all I do is a little weed. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. In fact, in fact the book was going to be that you hear that a lot now because of the legalization of marijuana and kids are using it. And they say, oh, I do is a little weed. Well, for most people, for a lot of people, that's not a bad that's not the worst thing, but for, for, for some, it's going to be a bad thing and it'll catch you. And may he just love marijuana. So he was starting to negotiate with me that arrival home. So 90 days came by and Hey, here's my, this is our son again, you know, right. this, this is our son again. Right. But you know, we had all these ground rules set and, and then bingo, they tell you, well, you better prepare for relapse. And I say, what do you mean prepare for relapse? I said, do I, this is, 90 days, we're done. We're going to go back to being be on, on the basketball team, on the soccer team. Yeah, yeah. Our life's going to go back in place. And, and you know, it, and, it, and it didn't. It did. It, it was for a little while. You know, but these kids, they have a mark on their back. And it is, it is very tough to tell a 14-year-old or a 15-year-old, I wouldn't have heard it, you know. It's like someone would have said, Steve, you know, we don't want you playing baseball ever again. You know, I'd have been, what? You know. I would have rebelled. Well, you know, you're telling, he's here for 90 days. You can't do drugs and alcohol the rest of your life. Right, right. right? To a 14 or 15 year old. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, me I've naively been to that thought, party. Yeah, me, that's right. Me naively thought that would be, that would work, you know, but, it, but obviously it didn't. And so you plan for relapse and all right, we did have a plan. And, um, he, he actually went and lived with my parents who live an hour and a half from here in South Carolina. I called my parents and said, would you mind having Christopher? Because, uh, you know, how they say you can't go back to your old playground. You know, right, play things, stuff. yep. Yeah, so he's there. He's on the basketball team at this really a, a, it's a, it's a town that segregation still is kind of uh, oh, wow. not a spoken term. But it wasn't long before he started using it again. And, you know, that, and, then, and then we were back and uh, that caused issues too. So it was a struggle. How did this affect your marriage? It was very stressful, you know, obviously having another son uh, who, uh, with my parents even being an hour and a half away, uh, but being much older, obviously than Christopher, you know, they, they had their ch- children ready uh, and they weren't expecting the grandchildren to come live with them, especially one that's uh, as active as Christopher could be. And so they started dealing with the things they really never dealt with from their own kids uh, growing up because we were pre-model children, actually. So so I believe we behaved and we understood what we were supposed to do and not supposed to do. But Christopher got dragged back into that again. So I'm driving back an hour and a half every day for four days. I told my parents, I'm coming down. I'll, I'll leave you money. Take care of Christopher. I'm going to come down and watch him because he was already starting to you know, to kind of deviate from the plan, his own plan that he learned for 90 days and now their plan. Um, so he started. So, of course, I'm I'm forming this alienation with my wife. We had already started to be we were already um, before that having a difference of opinion on how to treat Christopher. You know, one of the things I talk to parents all the time and typically they're not aligned and that, that doesn't mean you're going to have an addicted child if you're not aligned. That just means that it helps, it, you know, it doesn't help the situation. But Mary wanted me to do it one way, and I wanted to do it another. So when I went on this thing about we gotta we got to take back our family, we gotta, we got to, he's controlling it, we've got we've to send him to rehab. You know, I remember going to rehab, driving with Mary. We were already separated, okay? Okay, okay. Yeah, so we're driving to rehab. And we get out, and um, we, we leave them there. They talk to us about what's going to happen and things like that. And we're driving off, and we're going down the hill. And most of these rehabs, as you know, they're in the middle of nowhere. You know what I mean? This was, this was outside of 
uh, Knoxville, Tennessee, and people didn't even know where this was that lived in Knoxville. So we're driving off their property, and, and she is hitting me on the shoulder saying, go back and get our son. Because I was crying because he, here he was leaving a 14-year-old. Go back and get our son. And this was the first time she ever showed me emotion about this. And I said, I am not going back. I am not. And I kept going, you know, but, but I never forget that. Because I really kind of made most of the decisions that, that involved this. And, but it, was, it got to be very, very stressful. And eventually, uh, uh, Mary, who loved, who loved her boys, uh, you know, she, she was too much stress. She, she had, she wanted out. It was, as you know, it, it controls everything. It started to control my finances. Uh, we had, we had legal issues, tax issues, people throwing, uh, uh, rocks through our window, people breaking our windows of our parked cars. You know, we, Christopher started owing people money. You know how those people get. Uh, and so, so we dealt with a lot of that stuff and it was, it was just, it was uh, too stressful. Why did you think that after 90 days that he would be recovered? Like, did you spend time learning about the brain? What was the educational piece? How did, how did, how did you think that, where did you get the information or the idea that he was going to be cured? I guess that's just the general way I'm fairly positive. Okay. Um, so uh, I didn't read anything. I read a lot of things. And what I read was what, ex- what exactly happened. Other than I don't think Christopher got anybody pregnant, although he was very active. But, you know, I heard that I was going to have marital problems. I heard that I was going to have legal problems. I heard I was going to go bankrupt maybe. I heard this. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll check the boxes. Okay. And, and I said to myself, I remember reading and saying, well, this ain't going to happen to me. This ain't happen to me. We're going to, you know, we're going to knock this thing out, you know. And so no one counseled me on that. Even the psychiatrist who I love to this day, who was Kelly's psychiatrist, who's my psychiatrist, even the guy I love today, I mentioned him in the book, he handed me these three Xerox pieces of paper that had names of rehab facilities on it. Five, six, eight, eight rehab facilities. And I just, I still have it. And uh, I became an educated idiot on rehab facilities. And then you got to worry about, well, does the insurance company pay for it? Who pays for it? How much do they pay for it? And all those kind of things. So, since you know, it was a process and uh, it, it, it took a toll. But I took care of most of it. Right, right. And so he continues on his, his path. And what's going on for Kelly, your other son? Kelly is uh, getting good grades. Like I said, he's the, the normal kid. He's not very athletic, uh, totally opposite, uh, but tried real hard. And uh, it, was, he was, it was fun to watch. He wanted to, he, wanted to uh, he didn't want to be an athlete, but he, when he went out there and did it, he did. He wanted to be a drummer. And they, he eventually signed a record deal when he was down at the College of Charleston. Uh, with the record company before he died. And, but um, he was a gifted drummer and I never put my arms around music. I could put my arms around basketball and baseball and this kind of thing, but I never could figure out music uh, uh, with him. So it, it kind of made, it was almost to a point where it got to be Kelly was Mary's son and Christopher was my son. And especially when I started going down places and visiting him and staying overnight uh, with Christopher. So, Kelly never lost his love for me, and I never lost my love for Kelly, certainly. But it was sort of like I kind of checked out. And in my book, I even checked out as a husband when we had children. Because I didn't realize until later on down the road, way too long down the road, that uh, a child, when they're born, is a welcome addition to an already existing family. Where I, where I thought that my family started when I had, Chris, when I had Christopher. 
And I remember telling my wife, telling my wife in the driveway that we've committed an unselfish act and now we've got to put all our energy in our son. And what do you, what do you think now? What's, the, what's your belief now? Well, no, now I believe that I think that marriage had to be solid. And, and I would put my kids before my wife, okay, uh, very subtly, not overtly, but very subtly. And I think that was one of those things that pulled her apart from me, pulled her apart from, my, from our sons. Um, there's a lot of things that go into that. But, but I, I, I remember those some moments more than others, and I remember that moment particularly. And I remembered it, I was reminded of it or told it, actually, when I went to a parenting class boys were already in trouble. Not Kelly, but Christian was already in trouble. And I'm sitting in a room with Kat, with uh, my ex, and she finally got me to go to this class. Well, it was 10 Mondays in a row or something like that. And that's why I didn't want to do it. I was coaching the kids. It was going to be a commitment. And I really didn't want to do it. Well, it was great. But but all the people in there with the other couples, well, they had a bun in the oven or they just, just had a baby. You know, here I am with teenagers. You know, I'm learning this thing. And this couple says, well, your children are, 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 well, are a welcome addition to an already existing family. And I went, holy crow. And I remember apologizing to my wife out by her car after it was over. Really apologizing to her. I, I'm, I, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I said, Mary, I'll tell you the truth. I said, today was an aha moment because I've never thought of us as a family until we had, until we had Christopher. I didn't think of you and me as a family. Right. Right. So, yeah. so that that's very order, different. Order change. And then when, when Kelly came, well, my wife went down to the, the fourth in the, pe- it, you know, she was third in the peg. So, and it, and it wasn't overtly, it was just subtly. And it, it was the way it was. Yeah. I always joke about how the dog eats before I do, you know, like every, <laughs> everybody and the fish, you know, everybody gets fed and, and it's, you know, we're, we're la- and it's, it's super hard without even, you know, without even the, the, the struggles you guys had to put that relationship first when you have a, per, you know, when you have little kids and, and then when you have kids who are in trouble, I mean, that's, that's all you could possibly think about. And I, I remember my parent, my parents talking about, you know, so I'm, I was born in 86 and so is Kelly. Right. And so I, and I was the straight A student. I was head of every, you know, community service at, you know, all the stuff I was, I was, I was not the kid you would have banked on having these problems as, as looking from my parents' perspective. And, you know, I remember them talking about how they disagreed on when I should go to treatment. And in the time between when the one parent who was holding back for me to go to treatment. And the time I actually went, I was kidnapped and I was, uh, and then I was arrested and I'd almost blew apart my parents' marriage. And it, and at the time, you know, even after treatment or in my early twenties, I did not understand what that would mean for a marriage, what that would look like. But I mean, I've had situations, I have, um, I have, uh, three-year-old twin boys. And, uh, I'm a, I'm a twin. I know. I love it. I love it. They're fraternal twin boys. And, um, yeah. and they, you know, I've had, we've had situations where, you know, is the fever too high? Do we go to the hospital or, you know, do we do an ice bath? Do we do Motrin? We're at each other's throats about, you know, whether or not what to do about a fever. Right. And that's just a fever. That's not a life-threatening situation, but so I can't even imagine 
you know, when I look back on it, what, what that experience is like. And I, I remember my parents too, they thought that I was going to be, you know, cured or that I would, I would, I don't know. They, and I went to lots of treatments too. And each one, you know, what, why couldn't I get it? I was such, you know, I'm a smart person. Why couldn't I get it? And it took so much education for them to understand how to support me, but that was not a priority at a lot of the places, which, you know, looking back, I think is so important for the family to have a really, really in-depth, both emotional, spiritual, and, and physiological medical knowledge of what we're dealing with because, you know, we aren't the same person that you, that we're not the same child that you gave birth to. We become someone different. And I remember my dad saying, you know, I don't know who this person, I don't know who you are. I don't know who, I don't know who's inhabiting this body of my child because this is not my child. And that is really what happens to us. Well, Ashley, you know, one, it's funny you say that. One of the, one of the aha moments with, with Christopher, when he was really something else. And he was really causing trouble. He was almost getting physical with his mother, you know. And, and uh, someone said, you know, you've got to take your family back, Steve. So literally, we came home from that session, just my wife and I, and he was in the garage. And Christopher rarely ever cried. And, uh, and I really did either. But he looked at it, he, and he would say I was his best friend. And I, I probably was. And he was always honest with me to a point. And then, then it, the, it got a little, the honesty came a little bit harder. But, but I was in the garage, and I said to him, just like your dad told you, I said, Christopher, I don't know who you are anymore. You know? And he just said, what do you mean by that, Dad? I said, I don't know who you are anymore. You're not the, you're not the Christopher I, I, I know. And I know you could be. And he started crying. And he took very, he was very offended by that. And, I, you know, I was kind of happy he was offended by it. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. That means there's something. He was there. shocked that I said it. He was shocked that I said it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely remember feeling like I was possessed by something. And I really did feel like, you know, I, I don't mean to sound, um, you know, spooky or whatever, but I, I felt like there was a demon that was had a hold of my person and that, and that the things that I did and said and felt were not who I was at my core, but they were the only thing that was available to come out. And it it was, um, you know, and, and heroin and opiates allowed on the one hand, they created it. And on the other hand, they allowed me to escape from those feelings and and come down from what felt like a possession really often and and just kind of numb. When did you start to when did you know that your son was using opiates, was using heroin? Uh, Kelly, Kelly was very different. Uh, and, and he had gone to uh, he was going to school and college in Birmingham. And then when his brother died, I made a mistake and I, I sent him. I sent him back home the day after Christopher died. Back, let's get back to our lives. The, you know, all this. I'm going back to my life. You're going back to your life. You know, there wasn't the expect. It wasn't that we knew Christopher was going to die, but we knew there was a chance that he was going to die because we we had done everything we could do. How old and was he when Christopher he, died? Chris, 20, Christopher was 21. Kelly was Kelly was 19. Kelly was 24 when he died. When he was 19, when Christopher died. And he was a freshman in college. And so when he went, came home for his funeral, 
I just said, look, we're going to go back, you know, because it's not that, again, not that I wanted Christopher to die. Certainly I didn't. Uh, but but there was this expectation. I sometimes talk to ladies who say, I have a black dress in my closet waiting for that phone call. Okay. Maybe your mom had a black dress in her closet at some point with the expectation that she's going to get this phone call. I mean, they, they talk about my, my parents always talked about how, you know, for years it was every, you know, the phone call, every time the phone rang, their heart dropped. And my, my dad said, he said, you know, when that, when I had the intervention and the people came to take me away and put me in the treatment when I was a teenager, my dad said that it was the first, he was so relieved, even though I was a heart horrible to him. And then when it happened, he was so relieved. It was the first day that he didn't worry that I was going to die that day. Yeah. You know, when, uh, that's right. I talk in the book about the time Chris got arrested. He was in jail for 28 days. It, it, about 28 days. It just killed me every day to go down there and talk to him through plexiglass for an hour. Okay. And it's hard to talk to someone every day for 30 days through plexiglass about yeah. something, yeah. but I did it every day and it about killed me to do that. And, but I knew at night where he was. Yeah. That's you know, what my he, parents he was, would say. He wasn't yep. leaving jail so I could sleep at least during the night. I had other things to worry about, but, but like when, what's going to happen when he leaves, but at least I was sleeping and didn't know, but you're right. We, we used to, I remember being curled up in, in bed with my wife and we'd be praying that when is he going to come home? Where is he? Because uh, we don't know where he is. This is again before cell phones were really, really, you know, everybody had one. That wasn't that wasn't the way it was with for him. So, so back to Kelly. You know, Kel- Kelly. Um, he got. He came back. He finally said, "Dad, I want to come back to Greenville." Um, so I was, you know, I was kind of testing his emotions, and he came back here and he went to a a, a school for a little while here in town, and then he just transferred to the College of Charleston. And down there, he met a friend uh, who wanted to start a band. And they went to high school. They went to grade school together. I knew his family very well, knew him very well. And they started a band. And they were actually rather successful. They went to this thing, South by Southwest in, in Austin, Texas. Um, and that's where we really found out about this. It, they came back from South by Southwest in Austin, Texas. And Kelly, Kelly it was like in March, Kelly had come home and, you know, there were five guys driving in a van together, pulling up, pulling up, pulling all their instruments, uh, not staying overnight because they couldn't afford anywhere, barely could eat because they couldn't afford to eat, right? Uh, meanwhile, they're at South by Southwest, and I didn't realize the, that being invited to that is pretty good. So, so I never heard about it till they were going. Uh, and now I understand it's a big deal. But he comes back, and they drive through the night, okay? Well, Kelly... It has already started his situation. He, he fast-tracked from whatever you start heroin with to intravenous use. Interesting, his brother never did anything intravenously, to my knowledge or to his friend's knowledge. Kelly uh, was afraid of his shadow. And for me to think about him putting a needle in his arm, it, it just blows my mind to this day. But anyway, he fast-tracked to it, and I guess that is the appeal of that. And his friends that helped him do it, nobody knew about it other than a few people. And the girl that sort of supplied it, well, he had an overdose that night. They came back from South by Southwest in March of 2010. And I didn't know about it. Nobody really knew about it. His friends uh, called the emergency room. The girl called the emergency room. The emergency room picked him up in this parking lot by himself, took him there. And unfortunately, this is one of my biggest complaints. Here's a 24-year-old, 23-year-old maybe at the time, yes, leaving uh, the hospital. He's an adult, 
right? So he gets a little slap on the rear end of the back and says, hey, you could have killed yourself. You know, we saved you. Okay. And then just, he just walks out of there. Right. And um, so I don't know anything about this. He doesn't really tell anybody about this. And a couple of months later, I get a bill from the emergency room. Hmm. Right. So they don't want to tell you this because it's private. But meanwhile, they want to send you the bill because you're the responsible party. Right. right? It's just like college. It's just like, it's, it's just like college grades these days. Right, you know, right, you're paying right. the tuition, but the kid gets the grades. Mm-hmm. Um, so I never could understand it. But but now, so I get this bill, and it's for an emergency room visit. It's Kelly. I call Kelly up. I say, Kelly, hey, I just got this bill from uh, Roper Hospital in Charleston for an emergency room visit. I don't know anything about this, and and why didn't you use your insurance card and all this kind of stuff? Oh, Dad, you remember when we came back from South by Southwest? I said, Oh yeah, I remember. He said I was exhausted. And I passed out and my friends panicked and my wallet was left in the car and they took me to the hospital. Plausible? Yes. Okay. Because I knew, yeah, very possible. And, and Charleston, it's 100 degrees all the time. So, he, you know, he, he came out, but it was a heroin overdose. And I did not realize that until one of his band members, his closest friend who didn't know it, called me one day and said, Mr. Grant, he called me in June. I remember exactly where I was. It was a morning. And he said, that was not an over, that was not a uh, passing out. That was a heroin overdose. And I thought, holy crow, I'm going through this again. You know, I mean, my world was just rocked again. And I got in the car and I went down there to get him. And, uh, you know, I took him home and we drug tested him every other day. And he was off heroin for most of this, for that summer. Now he might've been smoking marijuana he might have been taking his out of van prescription, uh, you know, but he wasn't using heroin. And he went back, and we had this deal when he went back to college at Charleston that if he we had formed an agreement with the band, if he used, then he was going to rehab. Uh, and Kelly, Kelly agreed. Okay, so here he goes back, and sure enough, after about thirty days, it calls a we, we think Kelly's using heroin again. So I go down and get him again. But he didn't want to go to rehab because the band decided the band was the only thing in his life. He didn't really. He was 10, short, 10, 10 courses away, ten points away from graduating. You know, I'm talking about you got to get your you got to get your degree, Kelly. You can be a rock star after you get your degree. Okay, so so um, that was my big mission. And uh, fortunately, the College of Charleston uh, researched his transcript after he died. He, he got his diploma posthumously. Which was very, which was very, very nice. They did the ceremony down there. It was very, very nice. Um, it was, yeah, it's a goal after he died. Um, that's just another story in itself. But, but um, when we took him home, because the band kind of backed off on him, he, I lost my leverage uh, that the band was not going to take you back unless you go to rehab. That was out. So I really had no leverage anymore. So he comes back. I'm not going to use that. I'm not going to use. And we're drug testing him again. And sure enough, he, he starts renting this house very close to me. We talk all the time. We're watching Mad Men on Saturday together, the whole nine yards. We're very close. I was close to both my boys. But one Sunday night, I couldn't get him. Couldn't get him on the phone. So I, uh, it was very strange. I was dating a girl at the time. And I said, you know, it's very odd that I can't get Kelly on the phone on Sunday. And also when I text him, he usually calls me right back. So I was concerned. So I drove to his house, which is a few miles away. So his car was in the driveway. Uh, unfortunately, his car was in the driveway, which made me scared. Uh, then I got to the door. It was dead bolted from the inside. So I knew something was wrong. Uh, I knew he was in there. And, you know, I, I don't think he was sleeping. 
Uh, and of course, I find a brick in the yard, and I break the window at the door, and I go in through, I get the dead of black dog, and go looking around for him in the house. It wasn't that big, but there he is on the kitchen floor uh, with a needle in his arm, and obviously he had died, and uh, you know, vomit coming out of his mouth, and phone was on the other side of the room. But whatever he took, uh, somebody had sent him uh, marijuana from Charleston, a girl, and actually he he kept it there for quite some time. Because the coroner said he had one needle mark in his body when he died, which is not the sign of an intravenous drug user or, or a consistent one. So he here he was with, with – and the night before he died, he called somebody. He called his close friend, this girl that's always been in his life. They were just friends. And Anna – and Anna, she said, Anna, do you have any Suboxone? I'm feeling a little jonesy tonight, right? So if he had called me and said, Dad, I'm feeling a little jonesy. Can I have some? I don't know what jonesy really is. I do now. But I, but if he said Suboxone, I knew what Suboxone was by this time. I was becoming an educated idiot on everything. So I knew what Suboxone was. And if he had said that to me, I said, yeah, let, I know what's going on, Kelly. We'll get you some Suboxone. Well, she just said, I don't know what that is. She had no idea Kelly was addicted to heroin. So she said, I don't know what that is, Kelly. So literally, you know, he used it and it pretty much went straight to his heart. And what happens when you start using heroin, as you know, maybe after a period of time that you don't use it, you usually don't go back to where you started. You go back to where you ended, you know, and he went back to where he ended and that was it. And it's very tragic uh, and a very gruesome scene. His brother, when I found his brother dead in our house, he, he was looked like he was sleeping and, you know, looked like he was just going to wake up any second. Kelly's was a little, little, little nastier, obviously. Um, so, Steve, you found both of your boys? Yes. Yeah. What does that do to somebody? Uh, it, it's, 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 you know, people always say, you know, do you ever have problems? The times I have problems is the times I think about where Kelly was on that floor or, or how he looked. I think about that sometimes, and, and sometimes it, it, it really gets on my mind. And I, I dwell on my I, – I dream about my kids often, and it's interesting. My dreams are always about when they were little. They're not, they're not about when they were big. They're never big in my dreams. They were always little. And they were always, I always realized that at the end of the, when I wake up, they were clean, they were healthy, you know, they were, they weren't using drugs, you know, it was, it was a delight. And it's funny how I uh, had just dreams of that time versus the other time. And, and I really mean that. I really mean that. But, it, it, you know, Kelly's death was, uh, it was, uh, it was, it, that took me by, really took me by surprise. It was a real gut punch. And it was a gut punch for a lot of people because no one knew it. No one knew. In fact, I didn't share till really close to the end with my ex-wife because we were already divorced and everything like that. And, and, uh, and unfortunately, uh, well, I'm not going to worry about that. Okay. Did you call her to tell her? Yes. So my wife was, is a gifted linguist and she's fluent in three languages. So she was, in, she's a, a university professor. And so she was in Spain actually when Christopher died. So we called, I had someone called her over there that knew where she was and that, that got her home for that. So we came, she got home for his funeral. Uh, and I was able to call Mary that night and get her there when Kelly had died. So yeah, it's, 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 it's very difficult. It's very difficult. They, they both weren't communicating very well with their mother at the time of their death, which I feel badly about, but, uh, I, I didn't create that. Yeah. Yeah. Talk to me about what recovery has been like for you after this experience and, you know, a little bit about what you, what, 
what you would have done differently and what you would have done the same? This question comes up a lot. And I, I did a radio show the other day and I, with someone from Columbia, South Carolina, and, uh, and they asked me basically the same question. Uh, and, I, and I told them that I have very few regrets uh, about how I handled it because I handled it how I knew to handle it. I didn't seek a lot of advice. Um, and it wasn't because I was ashamed. A lot of parents don't want to talk about their kid abusing drugs and alcohol. It's, 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 a, it's a very, very mum thing. Yeah. So me, it wasn't. Not that I told the world, but when Chris was in Tennessee, while my ex-wife was saying he was in boarding school, I was saying, no, he's in rehab. Right. My, mo- my mom not, did the same thing. Yeah, yeah, he's not boarding school. Chris was telling people he was in boarding school. <laughs> You know, right. and, and one time he came home, he was in church with us. One of the most consistent things in our life, we always went to church on Sunday. Didn't matter how bad Christopher was, how bad Chris, Kelly was. Kelly was never bad. Uh, you know, his was eight months. Chris was eight years. But he would always go to church with us. He knew that we were going. And 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 a lot of it, that was my wife, which, uh, which I'm glad she did. Uh, but I remember he was home visiting and... Everybody was sort of wondering where Christopher was. You know, some knew he was in rehab, some knew he was in boarding school. <laughs> and one of my close friends came up to him and said, "Hey, Chris, how you doing?" He said, oh, "I'm doing great." And Christopher looked great. He looked great, you know. And he said, "I was I was talking to somebody, but I was listening to their conversation." And he said, "John said, hey, Chris, where you been? What are you doing? You know, you playing basketball? You playing soccer?" He said, "No, I'm actually I'm actually in rehab." And the guy said, like, for a knee, for a back? And the guy said, Chris, right away, said, no, no, Mr. Wofford, I'm, I'm there for alcohol and marijuana. <laughs> and I was proud of him. I was proud. He knew why he was there, you know, and uh, and, and he, he, he'd gotten it. So that's part of it. So, so when you talk about guilt, I don't have a lot of guilt because I left it on the field in the way I knew. I spent a lot of money, boarding school, five high schools. You know, uh, rehab facilities, uh, you know, and your parents will tell you there's a lot of soft costs, obviously, that go into this, too, besides the hard the hard costs. Uh, and then there's the cost of uh, how many years sleep I've lost. Oh, yeah. Oh, and, and yeah. Those kind of things. But from a from a guilt standpoint, like I, I talk to parents and they feel guilty about what happened. I think guilt sometimes or grief. I don't grieve a lot and maybe I should do it more, but I don't. Oh, there's one component of my grief that I don't have, and that's guilt. Right. That's, that's, awesome. that's guilt. Yeah, yeah. That's the only. I, I really can't. I, I think it's some much of grief is built on guilt, and I don't have any guilt the way I handle because I would do it differently. Yes. But that that's my question. Not about the not about the guilt, but like what would I do differently? Yeah, and and obviously you did the best you could at the time. We're just looking at it from the perspective of you know people who are listening who are in the midst of it. What would you have done differently? Sure. People call me about that. When I, when I evaluate, I tell my parent, I'm not an addictionologist. I'm a parent who's experienced two losses and they happen to be one of the stories. Things is interesting about stories is that it took two different paths to the same end. Yeah. Yeah. Two very distinct paths. But when I think, when I talk to someone who has the, again, I was, uh, I think I've told you, or maybe I told this to someone before today. I was talking to someone this morning. The, the behavior and the characteristics of someone who is being controlled by alcohol and drugs, even though it's unique to your family, is very similar from one child to the next. It's really kind of amazing. And so, But with that said, when I talk to parents who definitely have this issue going on, you know, I, they check all the boxes, in my opinion. I say, you know, 
I was, re- and they were 14 years old. They barely got through adolescence and, you know, drugs and alcohol. I don't know how early, how young you were, but for Christopher, when he died at 20, when he tied at 21, he might as well have been 16 maturity wise. Uh, it robs you of your adolescence. Uh, and, and it, it certainly did for him. So when I see a, cl- a person like that classic, I, I say, look, I fought this. And when people kind of knew what I was going through and I went through one rehab and then another rehab, they finally said to me, look, Steve, you need to send Christopher away to be rewired. He needs to be rewired. And I, this is when I started really understanding this disease and how it affects your mind. Right, right. Brain. The brain. And I, and I started understanding this uh, a whole lot better because I, I, I kept re- – when, when they talk about reco- re, uh, relapse, I said, well, I better start thinking about this because I didn't know about relapse. Where's the next chapter? Right. Okay. And there's plenty of chapters afterwards, I realized. But I recommend people. I said, look, when you know this is happening and you want to give it the best shot possible, there are places out there where, you know, 28 days is a, is a, is a thing really kind of developed by insurance companies. Exactly. And, every, and everybody patterned themselves for 28 yep. days. Well, 28 days is nothing. It's crap. You know, 20, 28, yeah. 28 days ain't going to get you anywhere. Nope. Okay. It'll detox I, you. I, yeah. Detox yeah, detox. yeah. And stabilize. Yeah. But that's, that's about it. Yeah. It ain't going to start changing your behavior yet or anything. Or your brain chemistry. Um, no. So, so, and I said 60 days doesn't do it. 90 days doesn't do it. You know, maybe an adult, but even in, with an adult, it's hard. You know, they say adults go seven times in their lives before they truly are sober, if that's their intent. An adolescent, you know, I think they, they say age of first use is a great indicator of lifelong sobriety or lifelong illness. Okay, so age of first use is a big deal. So I always tell people, look, try to find a program, whether it's this wilderness program, whether whether it's one that I helped start in Asheville, Asheville, North Carolina, which is more like a boarding school setting. A lot of it's based on budget, obviously. What's that called? It's called Montford Hall. I helped start that. It's been open for about six years. It's a it's a uh, it's basically a boarding school. This person who started it is a Ph.D., and is in recovery himself, and just like many of them are that have these have these ventures, and he wanted to start a not for profit wilderness program in an urban setting because it doesn't it doesn't happen where he wants to where he firmly believed that after a period of time we've got to put this toe back in the water, you know, and test the water not not bad tests but you know test the water in a city because some of these places are out in the middle of nowhere you know and they come back after nine months in the middle of nowhere to Los Angeles or to New York City or to Charlotte, North Carolina, Atlanta, Georgia, and boom. You know, how many of these people have ever heard about that all of a sudden the day after or one week after, you know, they've either died of a drug overdose, one, or they're back, you know, and it didn't work. Uh, so so I always tell folks we need to try something that is at least six to eight months long uh, to just get to it and, and at a minimum. I said, you know, I said 90 days. I was pigged on 90 days because no one really educated me on it until I finally realized someone said, you got to send away for 18 months. And I'll never forget, I got Christopher there. I said, look, Chris, this ain't working. Mississippi didn't work. Knoxville didn't work. Greenville's little program didn't work. I'm taking you to Houston, Texas, and we're going to go to a wilderness program outside of Houston, Texas in a little town. Uh, there's a girl here in town who's, who's there, and she today is very sober. It was great for her. And it's going to cost this, this much a month. I didn't know where I was going to get it. You know, I had no idea. It's going to cost eight or nine thousand dollars a month. 
And that's where I was. I was trying to, what, what am I going to do? So we got in this plane and we went down to Houston, Texas. He was willing, you know, we rented a car. We drove out to this place, middle of nowhere. And I dropped them off. I talked to a few people, but there were these four or five guys there that were in the program, Christopher's age, that looked like bouncers. They were so big. Okay. And I thought I could tell that they were in on the conversation, that they, they were there for a reason. And the reason was if Christopher decides to go, they ain't, they ain't going to let him. Right. And I think Christopher knew that too. Christopher was very savvy. I think Christopher knew it too. So I write a check for eight or $9,000. I can't remember. I knew I couldn't cover it and I knew I couldn't figure out how to cover it. Okay. I didn't know how. Okay. And that was the next problem, but I give it to her and, um, I leave, I go down this dirt road, which was like two miles. I get out and I get a little bit lost going back to my hotel in Houston. And sure enough, I get there and Christopher's there. (laughs) He had run down this two, very athletic. He had run down this two mile road, right? He left his his bags there. Okay. He'd run down this two mile road. He hitchhiked downtown Houston and got to the hotel right before I did. And I said, because he stayed there the night before, so he knew where it was. So I said, okay, Chris, what's up? He said, I'm not staying there, Dad. Those people are nuts. I said, well, it's just a rehab like any other one that you've been to. Uh, he said, no, no, it's different. They're, they're, they're a little crazy over there. You know, they, you know, the school thing and the whole nine yards, I know it's important, but I'm not staying there. Uh, 18 months, maybe? Are you crazy? So I said, well, here, Chris. I gave him $20. I said, look, you can buy drugs or you can buy dinner, Okay. But I'm, you're not staying here tonight. It's the first time I ever did this. And I remember it was, it was horrible. I got in that room. I cried the whole night. I don't know where he went. He stayed in Houston for about six months. And he finally met a family member, distant family member, and lived with them. Uh, and caused chaos because their son was in the same deal. Right? So eventually, so that's when I left Christopher on the street in Houston. And, not, and, and that, was my, that, was my, that was my attempt at this long-term program. So... Long, long answer to a short question, I would try to find a program that's affordable, believable, uh, has a good reputation, and have it for as long a period of time as possible. It's very hard to tell yourself as a parent that your little darling is going away for 18 months. You know, it, that, that's very hard for a parent. And I, think I struggled with that certainly in the beginning when, some, when people started telling me about these things. Right. But from your perspective, having the background that you have, uh, you know, probably in retrospect. I do it in a heartbeat because one, they're, one, they're going to be of an age, that age, uh, Christopher had already turned 18. Yeah. So yeah. he can run, he could go. That was the risk. And I knew the risk. You go, you take a 14 year old, 15 year old, 16 year old, 17 year old, they're kicking and screaming. They're going to stay. They have to stay. So, so that was sort of the difference. And that was why I would encourage someone. And it's very important when we start talking about kids and I said, well, how old is your son? Oh, he's seven. He's seventeen and a half. I said, "Ooh, well, now's the time we got to think yeah. about this." Yeah, because the, Go alternative, now. the alternatives are much better. You don't want your seventeen-year-old, who's really a fourteen-year-old in his head, mature-wise, going in, a, in an environment with adults because adults have bigger, pro- different problems entirely than adolescents do. Right. right. So all of a sudden, Christopher found himself in these communities with these gentlemen. Okay older gentlemen, uh, doctors, lawyers, different parts of the community. He went to a very nice place in Hattiesburg, Tennessee, Hattiesburg, Mississippi, excuse me, Hattiesburg, Mississippi, and he went there twice. And uh, they were good, but nothing, nothing, you know, Christopher was one of those, uh, you know, you hate to say that, I know we gave it a best shot, but you hate to say it wasn't going to work, but he's as close to the one that it wasn't going to work for. Yeah. 
Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hi, it's Ashley, your host. I'm so excited to announce a brand new support group at Lion Rock called Community. Community is a recovery support group where all people in the pursuit of peace in mind and body may find hope and healing through connections with each other. Community is open to everyone and meetings are available online daily, Monday through Saturday. For more information, please visit our website, www.lionrockrecovery.com and click on meetings tab. Come and join us. So, okay, let me just tell you a little bit about community. Community is awesome um, in part because I helped write it. But um, so I just want to tell you a little bit about the belief. So this is a place where people can come. doesn't matter what you're recovering from. doesn't matter how you define your recovery, your sobriety, your abstinence, what have you. Um, and I just want to give you a little snapshot. Um, here are the beliefs of the program. We believe that finding peace and recovery requires a personal path and that recovery looks different for different people. We celebrate the diversity of paths and traditions. We believe that our lives can be different from what they are today, and we can get there with the support of community when we ask for help. We believe that we can change our lives if we can conquer our fears by doing the work. We believe that recovery requires renewal and depends on personal growth. Like many people before us, we believe you get what you give. We give positive energy. We believe that our inner pain must be released for us to find freedom, and the pain is often a signal there's more work to do. The work may include repairing the damage we caused. Our common bond began with our desire to relieve our pain at all costs and continues with the cultivation of our healing through our connections to each other. Our common goal is the pursuit of peace in mind, body, and spirit. Yeah, yeah. So um, it's awesome. The people are awesome. The meetings are awesome. And I highly recommend you go and check that out. Uh, Please Again, go to www.lionrockrecovery.com, hit meetings tab, and you will see an exhaustive list of community recovery support group meetings, including um, ones for LGBTQ and upcoming ones for the podcast book club. Stay tuned. Freshman, you know, he, he had very he looked in the mirror and didn't see that beautiful kid that everybody saw. He saw somebody different, unfortunately. Okay, so, you know, how I how I go on and how, you know, I've dealt with this. Uh, first of all, I, I know I'm going to see my children again. Uh, I'm very I'm very confident and I know that God has a plan uh, and I, I don't I didn't agree with the plan, but it, it's it's the plan. And so that comforts me a great deal. Um, you know, uh, and again, about two weeks after Kelly died, I had to go to a sales meeting and the guy in the office who ran our office said, Steve, you know, this is really not, not, but I really need some gray hair there. And so it was two or three weeks after Kelly died, right after Christmas, first week in January. So I go listen to these two guys that come to Greenville from St. Louis. And today, these two guys have huge podcasts. They're tremendous motivational speakers, Ben Newman and John, John O'Leary. And um, they, they were in Greenville and they were talking to about 50 people in this little horseshoe and they were the speaker was out front and we were in there and I did what I usually do. And it certainly felt like I didn't want to be there because if they were going to talk about the financial services industry and I had already been in it for 30 years and all these other people were new, uh, they're not going to say anything that I'm going to know. 
okay? But I'm just going to do a favor for my manager and, and go there like he asks. You know, be a good soldier. So we get there, and sure enough, these guys, instead of talking about what they how to be a better salesman, they said after three days of this boot camp, it was three days, after three days of this boot camp, we're going to crystallize what your legacy is going to be when you leave this life. Oh, wow. And I, I went, okay, well, wait a second. That's just it. We're talking about uh, whole life versus term and all this kind of thing. You know, we're talking about, we're talking about some interesting stuff here. So, so I perked up and they went around the room, okay? And they said, quickly tell us today what you think your legacy in life's going to be when you die, right? I mean, tough thing to talk to. There were 25-year-olds in there. I'm, I'm 50 at the time, probably 52. Uh, so you'd think mine might be a little more crystallized. But right now, I wasn't thinking about helping anybody, you know, and my legacy. Uh, I knew what my legacy was. The guy who lost his only two children, okay, to drug overdoses. And, you know, that I didn't care about what other people thought about me. That never bothered me like it bothers parents. That, that, that also never has bothered me. I was just worried about my health and my best way to help my kids. But anyway, they get to me that day, and I'm sort of sitting at the top of this thing because I want to be furthest away from the speaker that I could be in case they called on me. And I, and I stood up like you were supposed to do, and I said, hey, you know, I think I'm going to do everything I can to help adolescents and young adults who struggle with addiction, substance abuse, and mental health. I won several national awards for my work with the mentally ill, so I had some knowledge of mental health. And I knew that there is some connection, obviously, between mental health and drugs and alcohol most of the time. Most parents, when they talk to me, they don't know if it's mental health or if it's addiction. You know, what, what, what's, what's really pushing this thing? And, and with girls, a lot of times it, it's more the mental health side, that seems like. And 9 out of 10, it's boys. It's, it's the addiction side uh, and not so much mental health. But, but regardless, that day, so I said that. And these, these speakers said, well, why would you do that, Steve? And I said, well, I've lost my, uh, both my only two sons in the last five years of accidental drug overdoses. And I lost one three weeks ago. So everybody kind of shut down. They goes, well, let's take a break. So they talked to me a little bit. Well, anyway, at that point, I drew sort of a line in the sand. And I think God was looking over me that day, certainly, because I had no inclination. It wasn't written down. It, you know, there was nothing there. I wasn't expecting the question. But here's what rolls out of my mouth. Okay, well, if you knew me, it would be very characteristic of me. Because my sons knew it, my ex-wife knew it, my, my current wife, Kathy, knows it. Uh, that you know, if, if you called me this tomorrow and said, "Steve, I need something," I'm going to make sure I'm going to figure out how you can get it. Okay, that's just the way I always have been wired. So sure enough, I said that, and so I started thinking about I started thinking about creating a foundation that would support, uh, be a conduit to a lot of the a lot of the arms of addiction. You know, the the uh, prevention. The, the aftercare, the care, uh, the science of addiction, the education, early education, all these little pieces of it that I realize are not being supported uh, as much. And there's a lot of people in this business, unfortunately, you know, the addiction business and the recovery business is a billion, it's a several billion dollar a year business. And, and unfortunately, there's a lot of money in it. But I built a not-for-profit called Chris and Kelly's Hope with the help of the Greenville County, the Greenville Community Foundation. Typically, you have to have some money to start a foundation. Well, I was broke, and I went to Bob Morris, who I knew sort of, and he said, look, Steve, we have nothing under our umbrella of funds that deals with drugs and alcohol and addiction, and certainly that's the topic. Um, so let's go ahead and start this foundation. So literally, it was a time, like you were talking about, like we were talking about earlier, actually, that people started 
dying of overdoses. Okay, and a couple of fairly upscale folks lost their sons the following year, and so we we right away, Chris and Kelly's Hope Foundation got a hundred thousand dollars from a high school a pep, pep thing, you know, it's called Spirit Week, where the kids go around and knock on everybody's door for, for 30 days and collect as much money as they can. And you're in competition with other high schools. And you give it to a charity. So whatever they collect, they give to Chris and Kelly. So, so right away after the shoot, we get $100,000. Okay, so we're, we're off to the races. And we've raised a little bit. I do it very part-time. We've raised south of a million dollars. And we give away it all the time. So my bank account right now is $3,100. And I know there's two groups that need help. Uh, and my mantra is, I'll try to help you as much as I can, as long as you're a 501c3. And also I help things like junior achievement, Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, healthy activities that these kids can do from that bewitching hour, I used to call it, the 3.30 to 4.00. To seven when you both your parents aren't back from work yet, but you're home when all the garbage goes down. You know, let's have them doing something else. So I'll support those those groups too. But by and large, 99% of it has to do with drugs and alcohol. We started not helping individuals, but when I realized that there are individuals out there, especially young adults, who are destitute. You know, they've scratched all the plastic. They've ruined all their relationships with their brothers and sisters and parents. They've got no place to go get money. And they find themselves someplace in a shelter or something like that, and they say, you've got to go to rehab. Well, I've realized that there's some very good not-for-profit rehabs that will take you in for a very nominal fee in the beginning. Maybe they'll put you on a work program, which I think is important. Mm-hmm. These, are, yes. well, these, are, these are young adults, obviously, not children. But they, it might be $600. It might be $1,000. We've probably done 30 of those scholarships for those people, and they just, they're overjoyed because they can't. Now, a lot of them have made it. A lot of them haven't. One of them right now is back again, asking me, and he's back in. And I don't mind helping. Uh, I love helping, in fact. So, and I get a call like that, you know, once every couple of weeks. What I don't like have happen is it got in a local place here that doesn't have the greatest reputation. They started, they started saying, if you need money, call Steve Grant. You know, so, so I got to, I didn't want that to happen, certainly. Uh, but most of the time, it's vetted by somebody else that this person needs this and financially uh, can't can't cut it. And so I work with the institution more than the individual to work it out that they can go there, which is which is very gratifying, frankly. Yeah, yeah, oh, I'm sure, I'm sure. And and is that the thing that made it possible to move on or move forward, not on? Well, it does help. You know, a lot of people would think that talking to people about this, uh, doing a podcast, I've been in front of a thousand people, I've been in front of 10 people and tell my story. And I've done it in a lot of different places over the last seven years. And my, my, my wife, Kathy, love her to death, but, you know, she says, Steve, this has got to be so debilitating for you. And, you know, in fact, it's invigorating for me. This is invigorating. I'm invigorated after I get off the phone with you. Okay. I'm not depressed. You know, uh, so it invigorates me. And I think it's my just my general nature is that I know somebody's going to hear this, Ashley, and you and I are going to have helped that person. It may be more than one. And as long as it's one, then I'm real happy about it. I know you are, too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's why that's why I do this. And, and you know, it, it was my experience as well. I I. I got sober at 19 and I've been clean and sober for 14 years and uh, I put my life back together, but I was the same age as, uh, as you know, I'm the same age as Kelly would have been. And, 
And uh, I, I was around and I just happened, I, you know, my overdose, I just, the paramedics in the Bay Area just happened to have Narcan, but I would not be here without that. And and it was accidental. I didn't mean to do it. It was the same thing. I came out of rehab. I hadn't, I, I you know, I hadn't, I, in fact, I had gotten out of rehab and I was 17. I gotten out of a, a lock, cut lockdown rehab and I came out and was totally disoriented, smack back into my old world. And I had started drinking again because drinking's not you could do that yeah well and and i was so disoriented i just i needed to cope right i hadn't learned the skills i wasn't committed so i started drinking again and as a result and i always say this to people as an important piece i have zero recollection of getting heroin i don't have a recollection of getting needles i don't have recollection of making that decision i had absolutely no intention of using heroin again. I became so intoxicated that I made a decision under the influence that I do not remember. And what happened was I woke up after this Narcan overdose to a situation that I had created unbeknownst to myself, which you know, is this interesting phenomenon where I say, you know, oh, I'm just going to start drinking. You know, people say, I'm just going to start drinking. I say, you have, you, you don't know what you're going to do. That's the truth is that if you, if you're engaging in your addiction, if you take that first drink, you know, my experience is that I made decisions against my own will and I woke up to them. Yeah. And, you know, I, I love hearing stories like yours. Because unfortunately, I don't. You don't hear as many success stories. You know, I, I'm a baseball player, so a batting average is a great. You're a Hall of Famer if you bat 333. You know, one in three. You get one hit every three times up. You pay a lot of money if you, even if you get one hit every four times up. But in in this world, you don't hear about. Uh, you know, you might hear about one in ten or one in twenty, but it's a low number. It has. A, I always say it has. Rehabs have a poor batting average. Success in this world has a poor batting average when it comes to recovery for whatever reason. But And there's, there's probably several of them. But uh, it, it's, it's always – I'm always stunned. So that was the first time you went to rehab, right? Actually, no. No. I mean, no. With heroin overdose, you didn't go to rehab. No, I, I, I had gone to outpatient – I had gone to three places before the overdose, and then I went to three more. After the overdose, and you were you still using heroin afterwards? Uh, yeah. Uh, well, so okay. I, I I had the overdose, and then I went to a year long pro, uh, program for young adults, which was amazing. Changed changed my life. My best friend, all my best friends are from there. You know, as my high school experience, basically. I lived there for a year, and then but I relapsed while I was there. I ran away and drank. Um, I was I was seventeen, and then I went to another rehab, and then I went to another halfway house, and then I used again, and I infected all the veins in both of my arms. And you know, the thing that was crazy about that is if you had, you know, like your sons, I was not the the portrait of what the heroin addict what people think a heroin addict look looks like or or sounds like and i had all the knowledge i had been to treatment a million times the truth was that i had to i had to do a lot of deep work and i had to be ready i had to be ready to let go 
of this thing. And, and in order to stay, you know, we talk about like the one in 10, the one in 20, you know, in order to stay sober a long time, I, I talk about this a lot. I know when I talk to people who have been sober 10, 20 years, I know what it takes to stay sober that long. I know what it takes to be in horrific emotional pain and have no easy, you know, way to anesthetize that. Every feeling, every, you know, there's nowhere to go. And over time, if you are going to stay sober a long time, there's a lot of emotional, spiritual work to be done and growth to be done. And not everybody either knows how to do it or is willing to do it. And I think that's been, you know, I I have been challenged over the course of my sobriety to grow up and to get better and to make my recovery stronger and to continue to keep it at the forefront, even though I'm nothing like the person I was, I still have to be as active today in my recovery as if that person is right behind me, which is a very strange feeling. Oh, you know that the person's behind you. And, and uh, you know, I have the I have the utmost respect for anyone that's been in recovery any length of time, especially when you see these people that know the date. And it was 30 years ago today. You know, those guys, I, I just get thrilled with that. And I've, I've actually, I'm in a position here that I, that I, that part of my role is I hire people and I mentor people. And, you know, uh, I have, I actually have hired a couple of guys who are in recovery and they've been in recovery two, three, four years. Because when I see on the resume that someone's an Eagle Scout, I think, well, that's pretty good because I know it's hard to become an Eagle Scout. Okay. Well, I also know that when you share with me that you've been in recovery for five years or 10 years, I'll also say to my mind, I'm going, hmm, that's, that's impressive. That's very, that's a great characteristic to have. Uh, cause I, you know, I, I have to worry about myself at times. Um, and, and I'm, I'm very envious of folks, uh, who, who can do that because there, there's a tremendous, obviously it's, it's a tremendous difficulty to it. And I'm always cautious when people are announcing those anniversaries and I say, congratulations. And I say, stay strong. And the reason I say stay strong is because what you just said, you don't have to, you don't have to tell anybody that you know that's been in recovery for any length of time that they worry about that person behind them. And you know, when I I got sober January seventh, two thousand six, and when I got sober, I was nineteen years old, and I had nothing. I had no, you know, I had nothing. I didn't have children. I didn't have a husband. I didn't have a career. I didn't have education. I didn't have anything. And so, what's terrifying is that sobriety and recovery have allowed me to build a life, right? And have allowed me to put this stuff together. And now I have so much to lose. So much. I have people who count on me, but the girl who wants to go get loaded in the back alley, the girl who wants to, she's still there and she still talks to me and she's still, you know, she's still present in the picture. And now there are stakes, and I never had stakes before. And and that's a that's a really different and challenging piece of my recovery today, which is I don't get to entertain thoughts maybe the way that I used to kind of play with fire or what if or whatever. I there are people's lives who count on me and me staying sober. And that has to be just as important too. And that's new to my recovery. You know, you're right about the stakes. Uh, 
occasion when my wife and I go out, uh, you know, I'm, I'm the guy in this town, like I tell people that he's lost two kids, but now the guy who's lost two kids, but started this foundation and uh, that fit that park on that fitness trail that are about 2,600 people see every day at Kristen Kelly's whole fitness park was started by this guy. You know, he's also built this, he's built that he's helped support here and he's helped support there. He's raised $800,000, you know, and help people. He talks around the country. Well, my wife says, when we go out, we say, who's going to drive? You know, because one of us is probably going to drink, right? We drink socially. And always, my wife is always, and it goes through my mind, but she likes to remind me. She says, Steve, the worst thing that could happen to you right now is that if you got arrested for drinking or you got arrested for public intoxication or something like that. And, and not that that's going to happen, but there is, I do think about the stakes that I've built that are built around me that have to, that I, that, that people see me as, you know, in one of the places in my book, there was a time, obviously I admitted that, uh, that I went to rehab for a couple of weeks after Christopher had died a year or so after he died. And, and I started using a lot of alcohol and I checked myself in uh, for a couple of weeks and, it, and they put me on that psychiatric side right away because they said, you're just medicating yourself, Steve, with alcohol. So, after that, but, but there's another thing I, I did that I talked about on the anniversary of my first son's death uh, in October of, so he died in five, October of 2006. On the anniversary of his death, my buddy of mine said, Steve, let's go out to have a drink. You know, I know he knew it was the anniversary of Christopher's death. So we went out and had a couple of beers and we had three or four beers, but I was a mile away from my house, right? So I, I go home and I was single and at the time, I would usually get on my leather sofa, watch TV, and all of a sudden, I'll be sleeping, okay? And it's a Friday night, so I get home. It was not late. I didn't fall asleep. All of a sudden, I said to myself, you know, I think I'm going to drive downtown and get some work done in my office 10 miles away, okay? And I think I'm fine. You know where this is going, right? So I get pulled over, you know? And I ended up, you know, and it's so funny. I get in the back of the police car. They're going to take me down to the police station. I feel like dog dirt, you know, sitting there going, oh, my God. You know, here you are. And I hadn't started the foundation or anything like that yet. Kelly was still alive. Kelly saw my picture in one of those things they put in a in a grocery store. Because one, one of the parents, yeah, mugshot, you know, that they put in the grocery store. You know, one of his, one of his I didn't know they did that. And one of their, one of his friends, uh, Gave it to her son. Said that looks like Steve Grant in that picture, you know. And sure enough, my father, my my son said, and I had already told him that that I had told him when he came home from school one time that that's just what happened. But he said, yeah, I, I didn't know it, Dad, because someone showed me the picture of you, you know. And I explained to him what happened. But was real interesting when I get in the car and I'm driving. He's driving me downtown. I had gone through the, all the gyrations and you know, touched the nose and walk walk this and that, do that. And it was freezing out. So part of what I was really having problems with, is I was shaking also. Okay. And so I'm not making any excuse. I just, but I go down there and I'm in the car and I'm thinking, okay, what was Christopher's advice? He used to always say, dad, if that ever happens to you, don't blow into that thing. Don't blow into it. Or did he say, if that happens to you, dad, blow into it. I couldn't remember which one he said. So I'm going, okay, okay. Well, the guy said, well, you know, if you don't blow into it, you're going to lose your license. Automatically, you're going to be considered guilty. You're going to lose your license for three months. Well, I'm a salesman. I can't lose my license, right? So I blew into it, and I blew it right over. I was right over, you know? Well, it doesn't matter if you're right over or if you're a lot mm -hmm. over. Same um, deal. 
So I spent the night in the jail on a Friday night in downtown Greenville, you know, and it was an interesting evening. And I think they keep you there purposely uh, for a lot of reasons, but you, you do a lot of thinking. And I only, at this point, most of my friends had gone to, from their landlines to their cell phones, and you couldn't call anybody to pick you up that had a cell phone. But thankfully, I have a good memory. And I called my buddy up uh, at 1 o'clock in the morning to come pick me up. And his wife ignored the phone a few times uh, because it was late at night. And he answered, and he came down and got me. But uh, if I had not remembered his phone number, I would have probably got let me out earlier in the morning, and I would have probably had to walk home. Uh, so uh, it was it was an interesting evening, and uh, you know that it, it was a it was one of those lessons you learn in life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that must have been that must have been quite the experience. But I mean, having been through what you've been through, I feel like people would. Yeah, I think so. You know, I, I, that's why that's why I've, I debated whether I put that stuff in the book. But I think it it really makes you makes you understand that uh, I, I too am vulnerable to that, and I too am guilty of things that I shouldn't have done that have exactly to do with this this uh, monster. Yeah, no, I mean it's it's not it isn't a moral issue. Um it, it's easy to make it that and it's easy to see it that way, but it's not a moral failing. Uh it really has to do there's a lot of neurobiology involved and um that's really that really helped me. It helped me understand how my brain works and why my brain when I put certain substances into my body, my brain kind of does a, you know, a freak out and a different part takes over because I was successful and capable, very so in every other area of my life. But this one area, as long as I was doing that, I, I couldn't function. And I think, you know, your foundation is amazing. I, there's, you know, I was actually helping someone get into treatment yesterday and we were talking about the cost of detox and the, this, that, the other. And she said, how do normal people afford this? And I said, they don't, you know, and, and, you know, that was the, our, uh, my company, Lion Rock Recovery, which does online intensive. We've been doing telehealth for 10 years. We started it because my aunt died of addiction of, and, you know, lifelong addiction. And, and obviously I almost died. And, we started it because we wanted there to be an option for people that integrated them into their life. Kind of like what you talked about where it was like, you're out in the middle of nowhere and then you get dropped back in. You don't have that, you don't have that support, but also something that was affordable for people, accessible. And, and so what your foundation is doing, making treatment accessible to people is so vital because it's not going to change nothing you know we we have a saying in 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 recovery and program nothing changes if nothing changes right and so if we as a country as a people as humanity don't step in and help each other with a problem that was you know frankly somewhat created by big business you know it's just certainly now certainly nowadays uh, you know my mine wasn't related to oxycotton but you know nowadays very much related to prescription drugs and you know fueled around things that we've done in our society and how we treat mental health and and all these things you know we can't 
change it if we don't change how we think about it and how we treat it. If we don't see it as a medical issue, as a chronic disease, as something that can be treated, but it needs to be treated long term. And there is no cure. It's ongoing. This is, you know, I say to people, think about it like diabetes. You can get it under control, but you have to maintain that control. You have to continue to take your medicine. You have to continue to eat well. You have to continue to upgrade your re- diabetic recovery as your body ages, right? As your as your cellular being changes, this is the same, but it doesn't go away. It's not going to go away. And that's so, I mean, I just, I, I spend so much time talking to parents about it I, as I know you do, which is this is not what you think it is. And it's important that you learn what you're dealing with before you do anything else before you do anything else, learn what this is so that when these things come to you, when the fly balls come to you and and baseball speak, you, you know, you have enough knowledge to be able to make a quick decision because I think so often it's just going on blind faith or, or, or what you think, you know, you're absolutely right. And uh, I'm I'm sitting here thinking a little bit more about me and maybe uh, you brought up a good topic about, about getting as much knowledge as you can about the issue. I, I got, it seems like uh, I, I ran into James Dobson several months ago, you know, the famous James Dobson. And we were on our way to church and Kathy said, there's going to be some guy here like, oh, focus on the family. Oh, I said, oh, no, no, James Dobson's not going to be here. Kathy, Kathy, I had no kids, but they really knew who James Dobson was. James Dobson is not going to be at your church, Kathy. There's no way he's going to be here. Well, sure enough, there he is. And I said, well, Kathy, this is like Billy, Billy Graham had just died, actually. And I said, this is like Billy Graham almost. He's in the top 10, James Dobson, right? So I'm listening to him, and I've read some of his books. And I went up to him afterwards, and he, I said, hey, I'm Steve Grant. He said, hey, thank you. Nice to be here. You know, great. Da, da, da. And I, I said, hey, uh, you know, I, I don't want to cut to the chase, but I lost two kids to drug overdoses, accidental drug overdoses. And here's my card. I have a card that has pictures of my boys. It says Chris and Kelly's Hope on it. And I handed it to him, and I said, uh, he said, oh, God bless you. I, that, this is horrible. It's a terrible problem around the country here. And I said, you know, uh, I had the pleasure of reading all your, all your books, basically. And he said, uh, which ones? And I said, no, I, I can't remember the titles of them, but I do know one thing. I read them too late. I read them too late. And he kind of went, wow. And I said, yeah. I said, at least I understand that. And, then, and a lot of what you're talking about is I read things too late or I, under, I understood too late. I understood why Christopher needed to be in a place for 18 months when I tried three places at 30 days or three days, three places at 90 days. I understand that now. And hopefully that can be the benefit. So, you know, when I wrote this book, you know, a lot of people were shocked that, hey, this your son died uh, 15 years ago. The other one died 10 years ago. You know, why are you writing a book now, right? Well, well you know, it's just, it was always something and always something. Everybody kept saying, you got to write a book. No one's lost to their only two children, although I've found a few people who have. And uh, and then maybe they haven't, uh, like Christopher Kelly, taken two distinct roads to the same outcome. So what I realized when I was writing this book was, I needed to tell people the why. Why does this happen? And and that book is less for people who are going through. Some people think it's uh, help people with grief. Well, I don't know anything about grief, really. Okay? Uh, and I'm, I don't mean it doesn't exist. It certainly does exist. It ruined my mother's life for the rest of her life that she lost her daughter. Okay? It really did. It consumed her the rest of her life in one way or another. 
Okay. Uh, I'm not consumed by my kid's death only through this channel. You know, there are times I go to a deep, dark spot. I'll see something on television. Actually, I walk, I drive every day to a location that uh, Christopher flipped the car in. And I found him with, with, uh, uh, who walked away from it after flipping a car. And I drive past that spot every day. And I think about it, but I don't let it ruin my day. So I'm trying to immerse myself in, in something else. But when I was writing this book, I had to tell people, well, why is it that uh, Christopher thought there was a pill for every problem? You know, maybe it was because he started using Ritalin at five years old because he was an active child. And the, and the teacher said, you know, I think your son needs to have some Ritalin. And I remember as a parent saying, oh, my God, he's already. And then at the end of the year, well, I think he ought to repeat. You know, so, okay, 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 we'll repeat, you know, and we go through this in my book. And then then next it's Adderall. Next, then it's, then it's uh, whatever. Then it's whatever. Then it's whatever. And then, you know, he gets an injury. He starts knowing about Oxycontin, Loratabs. He goes to his doc. My doctor is a good buddy of mine, a client. And, you know, he went one day after scoring three goals uh, in a soccer game. And the next morning he said, oh, my knee's killing me, Dad. This was another one of his indicators. And the doctor knew it. Because he was in there shopping uh, a, a, a big op- opioid, you know. He thought he was going So he comes out of the car and he sits down next to me and he says, and I can tell he was obsessed. What's the matter? He said, he said, he gave me Mobic. Mobic. I said, what is Mobic? He said, Mobic's like candy, Dad. You know, and I'm sitting there going, shoot, this, I got a pharmacist on my hands. Here. <laughs> yep. And, and the doctor knew it. The doctor knew what he wanted. And he gave Mobic, but he he also knew, Christopher knew that Mobic was like, you know, we don't want, I can't sell Mobic to my friends, right? Right. right. So, yeah, yeah. It's um, it's so def- the, the book goes into all those things, and it's really of more interest, really, to someone like you. Not so much because you've been through it. It's it probably interesting for you just to read it yourself. Uh, and I always caution people that they're, if they're in recovery, it's clearly in the front of the book. If you're in recovery, this may be a difficult read. If you lost your children or any child, that might be a difficult read. But if, for that parent that is very concerned about their seven, eight, ten-year-old kids, you know, who are out and going out in the world, you know, and maybe, you know, like I used to tell my kids when they're growing up because of my family and my ex-wife's family having some alcohol issues, significant alcohol issues, I say, you know, guys, you're going to like something one day. Uh, I, I guarantee you, one of these days, you're going to like something. You know, and, and might be bad, but you're going to like. Okay. And I used to say that, not all the time, I just say, you're going to like something. Well, Kelly found heroin. Boom. You know, he liked it. Christopher found marijuana eventually. Boom. He loved it. But that's the thing about, and I, I want to touch on this, which is that that's the thing about marijuana. Like the substance is a symptom of the problem. And so I think a lot of times people focus on what the substance is. Oh, it's marijuana and alcohol. Oh, it's this. And I think what's important is if your child or person you love, whatever, is seeking to feel differently than they feel using substances, it doesn't matter what that substance is. It it could be video games today. It could be... be Yep. Video games on your cell phone, video yep. games anything. on your iPad. It yep. could be anything. You it could, could, you know, it, it could have been me shooting basketball free throws for two hours every night right. growing up. You know? right. I mean, it was something that, you know, it, it was my behavior. Right. It's, and, and it's, about, was it's about the escape. And I think that's the part that confuses or, 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 or you know, kind of 
hides this issue is where people say, well, he's just doing X, Y, Z. And I say, look, it doesn't matter what the substance is. They'll change substances that, you know, they'll they'll switch. It may not be their drug of choice and they'll use it. Or when people say, you know, kind of like your son did and I did, which is, oh, I'm going to stop the alcohol, but I'm going to continue with the marijuana. I'm going to, or whatever, insert whatever. It's like, it's not about the substance. I mean, that you put the substances aren't, heroin isn't evil. You put it on a desk and it doesn't do anything. It's not going to hurt anybody. It's like, you know, it's not the substance is it's about what happens when it what it's doing for that person and i i just think it's so important that we're talking about look we have a mental health crisis on our hands and the reason that people children uh you know there was an i did a a press tour recently and there was a uh, what did they did an opener about me and and they're like childhood drinker ashley and i started laughing as like childhood drinker but i realized i was a childhood drinker i was i was a little little kid and why was that because i didn't have the skills to deal with the feelings the emotions what was going on in my life i didn't know how to do that and these things solved that problem for me and yeah you found something you liked found something i like made you feel good yep so anyway i i am just so grateful to you for being here and telling your story it's amazing and i want to direct everybody to your foundation site and help with that cause because i think that you're doing amazing work and i want as many people to know about it what's the name of your book the book is called don't forget me and real quickly, the publisher had a great idea. He got a picture from me with Christopher and before 2005, took a selfie of his hand reaching up into the sky. I don't know why he took it. I kept it. It was a color picture of just his left hand reaching up in the sky. So they took that picture and they made it the cover of the book. And for some significance, there's some clouds in the picture. So he's reaching up to the clouds. And then Don't Forget Me came from a picture that my mother found after both my sons had died. We were going through some pictures. And she said, have you seen this picture, Steve? I said, yeah, that's a picture of Christopher playing soccer in the ninth grade. You know that, Mom. She said, no, have you read the back of it? And I said, no, what's on the back of it? She said, it said Christopher's handwriting, Don't Forget Me. You know, and my mom said, well, what is that? I said, well, I think that's a God wink or God thing because I said, oh I've never seen gosh. this before. Yeah, it's really eerie. So that's yeah. where Don't Forget Me came in. The picture's in the book and, and his handwriting. It was his, his handwriting was not very good and it was it's very obvious it was his. So I said, wow. Um, so, so the books Don't Forget Me and, it, you know, came out February 4th. We had a great article in the Wall Street Journal about us, which is, I think, where you may have found out about me. Uh, and then there was a subsequent article about me in the Wall Street Journal. Had a lot of interest from that and a lot of uh, things like this podcast. It was also Amazon's number one bestseller for three weeks in the drug and alcohol category. Okay. So, uh, you know, it's, it's going to help some a lot of people. But proceeds, partial, most of the proceeds of it go to the, go to the foundation. So I'm always interested in selling more. And it was sold out several times. It was nice to hear that from my friends who said, I tried to order it, but it's on hold. It's on order. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. And the book book world is a little, I don't know if you've written a book yet, Ashley, but the book world, I'm not writing another book. This is a one and done. And uh, and I really do mean that. And uh, I don't think those are words I'll ever regret. Um, But uh, because not that I hated it, but it's a long process. And, uh, it's 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 not as easy as people think. Yeah, I um I have a book on Amazon that was published by my by my company. So 
I didn't have to go through the, uh, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't have to go through a real publisher, but I've, I've heard that it's intense. Yeah, it is. It is. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, I had to, I had to, the reason I think the book has done well again is because we tell the why, uh, we have a guy named James Campbell who I became, who's an addictionologist, he's PhD. He happened to be in Greenville. I happened to know him through the course of contributing to different organizations. I asked him, Hey, listen, can you help me write this book? And he said, I'd love to, I'd be honored to. So I would tell him a story and he'd say, well, this is why this happens. You know, and uh, so it, there's a lot of pictures in it, a lot of a lot of notes. I kept everything from rehabs. I kept everything from doctors' reports. Kept all the letters that I got that told me what a jerk I was. Mm-hmm. This is the best thing that ever happened to me, Dad, and all those. Mm-hmm. So it because it, it kind of lets people know that they're not alone in this battle. This is a behavior that their son or daughter had too. Yeah. Or this this could happen. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for writing that and, and giving that. I know it, it means a lot to people out there to share that. And and um, it's an extraordinary and in, in from wonderful to terrible on every spectrum story. What uh, Tell us where people can find the foundation. Uh, the foundation is www.chriskellyhope.org. And on that is, uh, you know, we have a, I have a great, Stacy Bevel does a great job keeping up with all the things that I do. And eventually when this goes public, we'll post this on our website, hopefully. Um, and, and, uh, there's a lot of things on it. And then we have, uh, we have a separate website for the book, of course. And, uh, so it, yeah, we get, we get a lot of, uh, a lot of interesting things. Yeah. Yeah. It's wonderful. Well, thank you so very much for being here and for doing this and sharing your story with me and your time. I really appreciate it. And I love what you're doing and uh, will definitely be an active supporter. Well, I appreciate it too. And I uh, I most enjoy meeting people like you. Thank you. It's a great, great, uh, great uh, thing you're doing. Congratulations on your own sobriety. Thank you. Thank you so much. And and your husband's too. And God bless you. Thank you. Thank you. You as well. Take care. Thanks, Ashley. Thanks, Steve. Bye now. Bye. This podcast is sponsored by Lion Rock Recovery. Lion Rock provides online substance abuse counseling where clients can get help from the privacy of their own home. They are accredited by the Joint Commission and sessions are private, affordable, and user-friendly. Call their free helpline at 800 258 6550 or visit www.lionrockrecovery.com for more information.